My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Sonal Patel, MD. She is a pediatrician, neonatologist, and breastfeeding specialist who founded NiaCare in 2018. NiaCare is a home health clinic focused on improving postpartum care. <clears throat> she has written several articles on this subject, published in Scary Mommy, Kevin MD, and Colorado Sun. She wrote her first book, The Doctor and Her Black Bag, that examines maternal mortality in historical and personal context and solutions to reduce maternal mortality. She is also a co-founder and co-executive director of the Center for Fourth Trimester Care, a national physician-led nonprofit with the mission of improving postpartum care. I had the privilege of meeting Sonal in person at the TEDx Ocala event uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, after hearing her speak, I knew I had to have her on the show to, to share with this audience uh, exactly, uh, well, not exactly, but essentially everything that she shared on that TEDx stage. Uh, it was just incredible information that I wish I had known, um, you know, as a new father, uh, you know, to, to really help me be a better husband and better father early on in my uh daughter's life. So Sonal, thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation with me and uh, coming on the show today. Oh my God. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is like, this is actually was a purpose of the talk was to open these conversations. And so I felt the talk, it is doing the purpose it is, is to really have as a platform to, okay, let's really talk about this. And from the father's perspective, not just the mother's perspective. So I am super excited. So let's talk. Right. Well, um, I, I'd like to start off with, you know, where it all began, you know, where, where were you born and raised and, and what were some of your early influences? Definitely. So I actually was born in India in Lucknow, India, and I moved around quite a bit. My parents were both physicians. Um, my mom wanted to come to the United States. And so my dad gave her an option of Nigeria or Jamaica. And so it was, so we ended up in Nigeria. So we lived in Joss, Nigeria for about three and a half years. Um, this was during the time that the British were ruling. And when the British stopped ruling, uh, Nigeria did not become a very safe place. We migrated a little bit. We actually went to Libya for six months. Yes, that's a long story in itself. And then we ended up in Omaha, Nebraska, all the places to end up in America. We ended up in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I did my high school there and my parents still live there. I have a younger brother. His family still lives there. And Omaha, Nebraska became literally our home um, after being travelers for such a long time and <laughs> going all around. That's pretty Is there a story behind how you ended up in Nebraska? 
Yeah, so my dad um, in Jos, Nigeria, he taught at the medical center and the visiting professor was a chancellor from the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. So he all he said, if you ever came out, he was really impressed with my dad's ability to teach. My dad has gone on to win tons of awards for his teaching um, as well. And so he that's how we landed it up there. So it was a job that brought uh, my parents out there, but we never ended up leaving anywhere. Cause usually traditionally you think about immigrants coming to like, you know, the bigger cities, cities like Los Angeles or New York, but nope, smack dab Omaha, Nebraska in the Midwest. Wow. Cool. Um, yeah. And, and so at an early age, well, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Did you know at an early age that you wanted to become a doctor? Kind of, in the sense that, you know, you are from an Asian family, so you only have like three choices, <laughs> like either you're a physician, engineer, or business person. And um, I knew the other two did not fit me. Like, I don't really like math. Like, that's not my forte at all. And I just thought it was boring. And I just realized, like, even the influence that you were talking about, my parents were able to take the skills they had as being physicians and travel the world. And no one stopped them to be like, no, no, we don't need your skills. So I thought what a unique job that if you did decide to take your skills, because the human body doesn't change, right? The diseases might change per location, but you can take your skills anywhere and you can be a little bit mobile than the other two careers would allow you to be. And so that was my actually thought process on, okay, now I got to pick from these three. I am an Asian. My, my parents are Asian, um, the typical stereotype. But that was another reason. I was like, well, my parents traveled around the world when they were young and I could do the same. So that was my biggest influence of becoming a physician. So yeah. Well, uh, how did you end up in Colorado? So, um, so I met my husband at Emory University in Atlanta. The reason that I went there was my parents were supposed to move to Macon. I said yes to Emory. My parents said, no, no, we're fine in Omaha. And then I moved back to Omaha for the University of Medical at UNMC to do my medical training. At this point, my husband and I were doing um, long distance. And so what we call it's called couples matching, where you kind of kind of figure out a job together. And that landed us in New Orleans for five years. Um, My husband's super smart. So he got a fellowship in, so he's a physician too. He had a fellowship in uh, Harvard as a trauma surgeon. So that moved us, trauma orthopedic surgeon. So that moved us to Boston. And my only criteria to my husband was I need a direct flight to Omaha. (laughs) That was like my criteria. Like at this point we had one child, I had to like do layovers and you know, layovers just suck overall. So he looked, he looked for the job. Um, I knew I was going to do part-time initially just because you know, we were, we had one child, we were going to try to expand in our family. So I knew that I just was going to do part-time and I knew he was going to do full-time, but that was my criteria. So then we moved out to Denver, Colorado, and we've been here since 2009. And I just, um, just in that kind of uh, career path too, I've had the privilege of going to every part of the United States. And we finally made it to the Northwest um, this summer. And it's been really incredible to not only experience each part in their cultural and you know linguistic ways but also just the people you know and also the medical training too because it's different with every region as well so it's it's been fun was your your mom or or your dad were either one of them uh pediatricians so my mom's actually obgyn 
um, and she's family practice OBGYN. So that was her initial training. But when you come to the States as an immigrant physician, you have to do almost all your training all over again. It's, it's though she was practicing for God knows like 15 years in other countries and doing great here in the United States, you have to redo all of that training, particularly your residency. And so through residency, there came a point where my, like now she, she was faced with the decision. It was like, well, does she do the OBGYN training? And she has to leave her family and go to Columbia, New York um, when we were about 10 and five. So that was not a really an ideal age. So there was a family practice position opened in Omaha in the rural areas. And um, so she did that. And through that, she was able to do her OB. And my dad has always been a family practice doctor. And so he was able to continue that when we moved to Omaha. So yeah. And then I'll just throw it out there. My, my whole family's physicians. Yeah. <laughs> my brother's a physician. He's a cardiologist. He's married to a physician. <laughs> so we, we've got all the spectrums kind of covered. <laughs> so we're, we're a really good source of asking us family questions because we got, we got all of it covered. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, let's dig into really what led you um, uh, on this, this journey to really take care of mothers uh, postpartum. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because I get asked that question a lot because I'm a pediatrician. My background is pediatrics, NICU doc, breastfeeding specialist. I'm not like trained in OB. I mean, I lived in a household where I know all the questions my mom asked when her patients kind of called the old times where you had a beeper and everything like that. And it really was more of a personal and um, awakening kind of journey. And as I got deeper into the work and I realized, well, as a pediatrician, I need my moms to do well because that directly influences infant and childhood development in many ways. You know, there's plenty of studies that support that, but it's not that they won't develop. It's like they won't become optimal. So for example, women who suffer from postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety and all of those postpartum um, mental health disorders that are encapsulated. When you look at those studies, if they're not doing well, their infants have their, they don't develop at their peak on the right time. So they might not be like rolling over on the right time or um, walking at the right time. And then when you start looking at childhood development, they sometimes those kids have um, adjustment disorders, like they get anxiety themselves um, and they, they're not doing very well on the standardized test. So there was a direct link of how mothers do in this postpartum period to infant and childhood development. And I'm selfish, right? Like I want the best for my patients. And so I was like, okay, well, I really need to start focusing and redirecting it. Um, like in the speech, I mentioned the tipping point for me was four. So it's a personal thing too. So I'm a mom of four boys. And that appointment was just so wild because when you read the book and when you kind of dive into my story too, you realize I, I've gone through almost everything <laughs> postpartum wise. Um, but I like my medical field demanded so much out of me for a 10 minute pediatric appointment. And in it, I didn't even see a physician. I saw a nurse practitioner and she literally said to me, you're an anatologist. You've done this four times. You got it. Bye. And I was like, I was dumbfounded because I was like, do you know how long it took me to get here? Like, it's not easy, right? It's not easy getting like 
yourself out of bed, worst case scenario, or even getting lugging that car seat with the baby. And then God knows when they're newborn. So they eat whenever they're hungry. There's not a schedule for them. So just opposed to that in the NICU, when I was, a, so during this time period, I was also a NICU doc, we would start having um, social worker and the NICU and any family that was staying in the NICU for over a week and longer, we would start having periodic um, meetings with the families and anyone could come, whoever the family wanted to support and started on noticing that we had a lot of postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety in our families. So here you are as a NICU doc, like trying to save these 26 weekers, 25 weekers, and you have them for two to three months, but then all of a sudden, you're discharging them to families that might not be ready, but you haven't even paid attention to that this whole time because you've been so focused on the infant and making sure that they were doing good. And so it was just kind of this, all of it just accumulated at once and said, no, we just need to do a better job in the medical. So my lens is coming from the medical field to, to really support families, which starts with mothers, then infants, and then um, go and behold fathers to kind of really support them in this, this like life-changing event that happens in people's lives. But unfortunately, our medical system set up that we we're just putting more demands on our families to be like, no, you have. So for example, the, the hospital that I worked in and I went and I had to go to that pediatric appointment, if I didn't show up to that pediatric appointment, social worker would call or to check on me and maybe there would be a CPS report, you know, like if things were bad. I mean, like, come on, that's what we're doing. We're penalizing families instead of like realizing their burdens and realizing the factors that prevent them to coming to that appointment. And as simple as, hey, the mom can't get out of bed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is as simple as that, so. Yeah, so that's that's all accumulated into no, we we've just got to change the medical system. Yeah, one of the thing that the things that you mentioned uh, during your talk <clears throat> that was interesting to me is that all along the the three uh, trimesters, the I think you said it's progesterone that increases mm -hmm. the, the entire time, and then as soon as the baby's born, it just plummets. Mm -hmm. And what are the effects that that has on a woman? Yeah, definitely. So that's, a, that's, a, I'm so glad that graph stuck with you because when, when we talk about women's issues, we always say it's hormonal, right? And we don't have objective data to be like, well, this is really what's going on. And go and behold, we know that the drop in progesterone. So the reason that it increases is your placenta is the only organ that's ever formed in the body for one purpose only, right? To support life. After that it's done, it's gone away. So the placenta is the one that's actually producing the higher amounts of progesterone. And then when it goes away, that, that allowing it to go away to add one more scientific data point to it is allows women to actually lactate. So if it was still there, that progesterone hormone that was gonna be such high levels wouldn't allow women to actually lactate and hence breastfeed. But then we're kind of starting finding out with new research and kind of continuing, like I always say, continuing the conversation after birth, that progesterone might actually have a role in postpartum depression that we are not quite realizing that. So um, it might, so in a spectrum of women, 
if you look at it, one in seven women suffer from postpartum depression, maybe that drop in progesterone is causing them to have more of a um, more of an effect on that particular woman, while some women just aren't affected by that at all. But yeah. And when when women are breastfeeding um, and they're suffering from postpartum depression, I mean, it's not advised that they take uh, medication for depression and all that stuff, right? No, actually it is. So you oh, talk to, yeah, there are some, there are some, medications um, that like an SSRI um, that you can take with postpartum depression. And however, what we're finding, like even just in my own practice, that sometimes women just need the space to talk. So my my always thing is my how I kind of help these women is first of all, let's do your foundation, right? So that's really important. So what does that mean? Okay, are you actually getting sleep? So here's a little nuance about sleep. Sleep is the number one indicator that a woman might be suffering from postpartum depression, a lack of it. But then you're like, wait, a newborn, how do you actually find sleep time in a newborn period, right? Because they're up all the time. So what that means is given the chance to sleep, a woman cannot shut her body down or shut, cannot shut her mind down. And she can't just take a nap for an hour. She has to be up. She has to be doing something. Um, and that's like your first sign that a woman is not transitioning well after giving birth. So sleep is important. So we talk about sleep. Number two, we talk about eating, right? Like, are you actually eating, you know, in this newborn period? And number three is water, water intake. Um, are you actually doing the foundations that are there? Next is voicing it to the families and support system around you. Like say, hey, listen, I'm not doing well because we, we're not having those conversations, right? We're, we're not like pushing those boundaries or um, fathers aren't realizing kind of what is going on, but it's also mothers get into these things that they don't want to ask for help, right? They just, they're, they're, they're like, I don't want help. I can do this on my own. I know I was like that because I suffered from it. Um, so then it's like, talk, talk to your family support system and say, listen, guys, I'm not doing well. Then we do counseling. And then we're like, okay, let's kind of set up a good structure of counseling. And then your last kind of resort is medication. And so if you can kind of walk women through that um, gently and with support, um, I think I've had of the 350 patients that I've actually helped. Some women have identified it from previous um, births, right? So they're already on their SSRIs and we just kind of continue it thereafter. Um, there's, no, there's no reason not to stop it. But the ones that I've actually started, there's only been one mom that I've actually said, no, 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 we need to start it because her husband had been deployed and it was just too much. And I was like, well, we can't, we need to kind of intervene that way. But in most cases, we, it's just the recognition of, dude, I'm not doing well. Like I need help. So one of the things that was really striking to me is when you were sharing the incidence of maternal mortality in the postpartum period, you know, in industrialized countries where the United States is compared to other industrialized countries. I mean, that blew my mind. And it's directly linked to that postpartum care of the mother. And I, I was hoping that you would talk about that and, and like really where we stand as an industrialized nation compared to others. 
Oh man, yes. That, that, I'm so glad that slide blew you away because what happened? That slide's not new, right? It was in this. It was in the news cycle back in September, and that's what the news cycle does. It's like, oh, we have this like tragedy going on, and um, yes, four out of five deaths are preventable. But let's just continue. We'll give a four-minute thing. And so my whole purpose was also to bring the financial aspect to it. So taking it one step at a time. That's like. I mean, we we suck. <laughs> I mean, the closest we have our uh, maternal deaths rates are twenty three point eight maternal deaths per hundred thousand live births. The next country I want to say is Canada, which is like eight. So we're like four times with our neighbor that's up to the north, and we are not doing well in this in this area at all. Um, Yes, I mean it is it it is eye opening when you say four out of five deaths are preventable. That's eighty percent, like eighty percent fail rate. Where else would you ever accept that, right? Like you're not going to accept it from your your children. You're not going to accept it from your job. You're not going to accept it. Like if your CPA was like, oh, by the way, you know, I did eighty percent. Is like we lost eighty percent of your, but it's like eighty percent of women deaths those maternal deaths were preventable. And it was shocking. The other shocking thing is that, and I explore this in the um, book too, like how did we get here, right? How did we get to this point? So it seemed like we did a really good job in helping our pregnancy death rates go down. So now we only have 22% of moms that are actually dying in pregnancy. However, we stopped the conversations of maternal health right when the baby was born. And the attention was diverted to infant and helping reduce infant mortality and thus childhood mortality, which we're doing a great job with that, where our trends are going down in that sense. Um, but we forgot to look at the mom and say, hey, you know, there's a lot of health issues that you continue to have. And this is where we stand. So of the newest data in September 2022, the CDC released on the maternal mortality I mean, 78% die after birth. And that's where I think postpartum really starts because the minute you have that baby, and why I say that is because you have to continue the conversation of maternal health. There's so many risks that come afterwards um, for it. So 78% are dying afterwards with 17% dying the day of delivery, 25% dying in the first week of delivery, and then 52% dying right in this crux of a week to 42 days or so. And guess what? When do women get to see their OVs, right? Six weeks. Or we've already, we're missing this huge chunk because women don't see their OVs at six weeks. And 40% of women don't go to their OB appointments. And you're just like, so what's, what's the difference? It is, and I think the last slide that I showed on there, is that other countries do have postpartum home visitations. So what does that mean? Their medical system steps up and says, listen, we're gonna continue this conversation of your health afterwards, and, and we are going to bring in medical care into your homes for you, for your support until you help with this transition. So, and we spend the most in healthcare dollars or the most of our GDP on healthcare dollars and our results are dismal to say the least. Yeah, really, it, it was just awesome hearing you talk and I mean, essentially you were like, look, I, I'm looking at the data. 
I can't just stand by and do nothing. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start offering this. And, and now that's what you do. Yeah. That's, and, and I just want to, before we go much further, I want to uh, mention the title of your book again, the, the doctor and her black bag. And when did that come out? Last year. Yes. Last year. <laughs> So that was my COVID baby. I worked on two years because I was like, I need to, I, I need to bring, like, this is, I was so excited to do this because I need to bring the male perspective into this. Right. And so when my husband, so that night when I came back, so this is the fourth time I've been pregnant, right. In the fourth, fourth postpartums or fourth trimesters I've been in. And when I came home that day and I was just like, I'm purely exhausted. I would have paid money for someone to just come and check my baby's weight. Cause that's all they did at that pediatric appointment. And little caveat, that appointment is very important. It's very crucial for infant because there's so much medical changes and physiological changes that are going on. So I'm not fulfilling that appointment at all. It's very, very critical. But that doesn't mean that appointment cannot be done at home. That's, that's my whole point. Like it can be done at home. So I came back and I was just like, I'm exhausted. Like and my contractor, of course, we're doing home renovation, right? And my contractor was the first person who said to me, and he goes, because he saw me, right? He witnessed me all day going and coming back. And, and he goes, didn't you just have birth? Didn't you just give birth? And I just like, you were the first person who recognized that. My contractor, he was the first person that recognized I just gave birth, right? And it was just like, yeah, I did just give birth. But I also went six hours in a snowstorm to get to this pediatric appointment. And so my husband, we, we looked it up and there was no, no, um, nothing existed like this. So you had concierge pediatricians who, you know, would, ch would charge you a kind of a premium to come out and you might be like, then you're long-term with them. Um, but there's no other places that were doing this that I qualified for. So let me, let me step back on there. Um, there's federal government programs that do something similar like this that send nurse practitioners out. Um, but you have to qualify for that. You know, you, you have to be either like a first time teenage mom or low income mom. Um, and, uh, and Kaiser does it too, but I was in a, in, a, in Colorado, Kaiser is not that huge here. So I was in a Kaiser patient. Um, so it was like, okay, but so bringing my husband into this conversation was so important. And that's what the book does too, is showing the economic value of it. Because when I was writing the book, one of my friends was like, who's also a physician, his wife has three kids. And um, he was like, but if you actually do the numbers, it turns out to be like a thousand right now, maternal deaths around the country. And you're like, well, that's a thousand women dying. Why? What, what does that mean, right? And I was like, oh my goodness, that's where I need the conversation to go. Yes, women die from heart disease, cancer, breast cancer every day. Like we, those are the leading causes of our death. But why is it that when a mother dies, like in this pregnancy, postpartum birth, like what is that, you know, part of it? So it's really exploring the economic impact of that because it is a generational effect that happens. So yeah. That's a lot I just told you, sorry about that. <laughs> I get excited when I talk about this thing because I think it's just like, when you bring that part of it into it, you're just like, oh, that just makes sense. <laughs> well, I, 
I feel like, you know, women are so tough. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I had no idea that my wife at the time was suffering from postpartum depression. It wasn't until after we got divorced that, you know, I was made aware of this and how crappy a husband I was, you know, right after the birth of my daughter. And from my perspective, I was just a useless ornament that would kind of hang around nearby, but I really had no role um, because I didn't know how to be of help. Um, And I look back and that there was so many opportunities for me to be better. And I think if, if young fathers, new fathers, even, you know, men that have had multiple children with their wife, you know, if they're just now learning about this, I mean, it's, I think it's beneficial to have this conversation and realize, you know, when when you bring your wife and, and baby home and you're getting them settled in, um, I mean, there's a lot of things that change for us too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like it didn't become real until I held my daughter in my hands. And then it was like, oh my God, you know, I, and, you know, I was a firefighter. So now all of a sudden mortality was real. My own mortality was real. And I, I couldn't uh, jeopardize my life because now I was responsible for this, you know, little baby. And, and uh, you know, like always kind of start feeling like I was like this uh, knuckle dragging Neanderthal that I would might break her if I, you know, got too close. But I mean, it was, it was, I just wish that I had some of this information back then, because I think that, um, you know, I could have been better. And I think that most men would agree that this is kind of like new, you know, I mean, we've all heard of postpartum depression, but how do we recognize it in our lives? You know, man, because in my mind, she was just, you know, kind of sleepy or whatever, you know, like she was just tired and maybe she wasn't getting enough sleep because she was managing so many things. You know, I, I was working a lot and she was taking care of everything at the house. And so I really, I mean, I just... I want men out there to hear all this information and understand that we play a role in supporting our, you know, our children's mothers. And by doing that, we're ultimately helping our child thrive. Yeah, definitely. You had mentioned that there were opportunities now reflecting back. What opportunities did you think that you missed? Um, well, I, I did spend a lot of time working. I was gone a lot. And then when I was home, um, you know, I could have, uh, I could have, you know, fed her with a bottle or, 
you know, taking her for walks to give my, my wife time to rest and get some sleep um, or to reassure her that everything was going to be okay. And like, yeah, you need to have some you time and, and maybe just ask, is there anything you need? <laughs> right. No, I mean, we don't, we barely have good conversations with mom. So like in like now with my repeat families, dads are more open towards me. Um, I literally just had a dad back in the summer where he witnessed in his words, um, his baby daughter almost dying. And it wasn't until my second or third visit. So what had happened, the baby had come out a little a blue, the NICU team had come, did their interventions, baby was fine. Like it needed about three, four minutes of intervention, medical intervention help. However, that picture was seared in his brain. So it wasn't until my second or third visit with them, he was just like, I'm not doing well. And it was so wonderful to have, and so privileged that I was for him to be like, listen, I know my wife, I, I understand this because I've done this with you one, once previously, but this time, I'm not doing well. Like I witnessed my daughter almost die. And so we got, we got him plugged into counseling and stuff, but it was great to see when you have these repeat families, when you have this, the dads are more like, okay, I, I understand what's going on the first time. And now I understand what my role is um, in all of this, but now I can actually focus on me and how I am transitioning into this new world too. You know, because every every child is a diff, it brings a different element of not only stress and joy, but just a different element of dynamic changes of the family. So um, I really love that you have that insight and you want to help fathers along. And I can tell you some objective ways. <laughs> so I think men are very objective in nature. So if you tell them, hey, do go do this, they will do it. But if they are, if they look at like, I mean, I, I did this trick with my kids. I saw it on Instagram, so it's not mine. I left literally a piece of paper on the stairs and I put a $5 bill underneath it. That paper stayed there for three days. So if anyone would have just picked it up, they would have been awarded for $5. And I live with five men in my house. So you learn that men are very objective. Like they they need to be, directed. So in this um, postpartum, so if you go on our website, we have a roadmap to postpartum care that you can download. Um, and it tells you actually it's divided into three different, six different sections and what the dad's roles are or what the partner's roles are. And it's as simple as, so one of the fathers that I worked with, um, he just looked at breastfeeding as a joint duty. So whenever his wife woke up to breastfeed, he was there making sure that she had the water, she had um, the food next to her. She, he brought the baby over. Her job was only to kind of get ready for breastfeeding. And it was very awe-inspiring because every single time he did that, and um, he was off for two weeks and he goes, that's my job also. So it, he took upon the responsibility that breastfeeding was not just the, his wife's job. It was, it was his job also, because like you said, it helps your, your baby thrive. And he goes, well, I want my baby to thrive. So I'm going to help my wife out. Um, obviously diaper changes and stuff like that too, but there's something called skin to skin with sunlight. 
And I think sometimes um, I tell that job is the dad's job because it's something beyond doing than actually like changing a diaper or helping with breastfeeding, right? So babies are okay to have kind of direct or filtered sunlight through the window. And sometimes if it's um, the summer, you can give them a little bit more direct sunlight for about 10 minutes or so. And it helps with jaundice and all of that good stuff. But let the dads do it. That's that's dad and baby time. Like moms, I tell the moms, do not interfere with that. That is not your job. So for 10 minutes, after, usually after after uh, afternoon feed, moms, you go and rest and dads can take care and dads can have their babies on their chest, holding them and just allowing that bonding as well to happen. So there's two things that are happening, right? First of all, you got to tell the mom it's okay, right? And the second time you have to say, okay, dads, these are your this is your duty to do and you do it as long as you want. Right. But then it becomes the father and um, baby time because here's the thing. We women aren't very easy either. <laughs> so we like to be a little bit more controlling because guess what guys, we've had this child in our womb for 10 months. It's not very easy to give up all control of your child. Um, but I always say then, if you don't allow those 10 minutes for dads to just do, just hold their babies and be comfortable with babies, then you're going to get up when they're three years old and you won't have, meaning as a mother, you won't have the ability to just get up and go, right? Like I learned that lesson with my first because as a pediatric resident, I had to go work for 36 hours. There was no way I could have directed my husband for 36 hours what to do with this child. That was four months old. There's no way. I was like, all right, I gotta go. <laughs> but for for what happened is that then I can go on those girls' trips later on because my husband was given the permission and the ability to come in and be a father on his own terms. Was it perfect according to my eyes? Maybe not. But was was my baby happy? Was my baby fed? Was my baby dressed? And my husband would bring him in such cute clothes that I would never put him in, like, because I knew he'd spit up. But my husband would bring him in, like, this button down, rolled up if it was a four month old. I was like, oh, that's really cute. And then he would take him. So we'd bring him for breastfeeding and then we'd take him. So I, I think there's those two dialogues that need to kind of happen at the same time. Um, and then the other objective thing is you have to see, you came together as a couple to create this family, right? So we need to also have nuggets of times where you guys can reconnect. So my first thing is that around two to three weeks when women are starting to feel a little bit better about themselves and a little bit transition is going on, we're not perfect there, but it's okay to be like, all right, if you have someone that is um, you trust to go on a coffee date for 15 minutes, um, I don't recommend dinner because it's just too much. I, I don't want to get dressed. I don't recommend lunch either um, for the first one because um, the 30 minutes or 40 minutes might just feel like, how can I leave my baby? So this is what we're thinking, right? Like, how can I leave my baby, right? But okay, maybe 15 minutes. It could just be out on your porch, having a coffee and connecting for 15 minutes and starting to build up on that. And what I find is literally by two to three months, women are like, oh, yep, me and my husband have a lunch date kind of done. And so it's just recognizing that as you continue in this journey as being a couple and as being a parent, from the get-go, it's like, all right, two to three weeks, we can do a coffee date. Let's check in on with each other. And it's 15 minutes. And it could be as simple as, 
outside on the porch or actually at a coffee shop, whatever you guys want. But don't bring baby, don't bring dogs, don't no other responsibilities. <laughs> so those are a couple of tips that we put on our website also to be like very objective and really recognizing where both parties are coming from. And what is the uh, what is the name of your website? Oh, it's Naya Care, N-A-Y-A-C-A-R-E dot org. So it, it's the roadmap for postpartum care. So you're it's it's on there. Um, the first three paid three days are free. And then I think it's like $17 for the whole six weeks because we do it for the whole six weeks and stuff. Yeah. And, and we put it all one page because it's to recognize all of these things are going on at the same time. Right. Like I don't, we don't have a father's page. We don't have a mother's page. We don't have a medical page. We don't have an infant page. It's like, no, no, no. We're going to put it on one page because all of this is going on at the same time. Oh. And and is a lot of that information in your book as well? No, that the the book is really focused on the so the subtitle of it is, is how old fashioned care tackles maternal mortality and benefits America's economy. So it's really focused on really um, an advocate book of why we need to change medical postpartum care, and these are the reasons why. So it's divided into four parts. The first part is just basically how I got to this position that I am. The second part, which I love doing, is medical history and how um, historical influences such as the germ theory, insurance, and feminism led to where we are at this part. And then the research part is the third part about Okay, now now we've kind of talked about all of this. Now let's bring in the research. And the fourth part is okay. How do we move forward from there? So that's more. That's more of the book. How are things coming in? in you know, on that front, us bringing postpartum care, you know, in-home postpartum care uh, to to the forefront and actually making it more accessible, uh, you know, across the United States. Yeah. No, that's a really good question. So. Um, we are purposely not going through insurance, <laughs> except for Medicaid. I, that's the only one I do take. It's just because then you get trapped into this vicious cycles of insurance where, so I wanted to step away from that cycle. So I always say there's a healthcare system that's consistent of insurance and, you know, administrators, and then there's medical care and medical care, healthcare system impinges on medical care. Um, we're keeping our prices super low. So like sometimes it's as simple as 150 to 250 because people are starting to recognize the value of it. Um, I say that when we created the Center for Fourth Trimester Care, which was the nonprofit that we just opened in January, there's about 10 or 15 physicians around the country kind of doing similar things that I am. Um, we just had our first conference and we are very staunch in that there's powers and numbers and we really want to protect literally this new medical field that we're creating and we want to protect it for our patients. We don't want to be impinged on our time. So for example, my first visits always last 75 minutes without a doubt. You know, there's no way that any insurance company is going to be like, Oh yeah, I'm going to pay you for that value for 75 minutes. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. 70, it, I need 75 minutes because at the end of the day, then my families are going to do better. Right. I don't, I don't want someone saying that, oh, you know, you only have 15 minutes for this visit. There's no, you can't get anything out of 15 minutes. I mean, you know, that's, that's not that thing. So we want to create, and we're being becoming very protective of it. 
because we want to have the dialogues with insurance companies on the benefits level, not on an individual provider level. So there's that difference. So we, we, we do have insurance um, look at this and say, okay, we, wanted, we want you, we, we want these for our patients, but we want to do it on the benefits side, not on the, like, now we're going to impinge on everything that you do. And we, we have the right not to refuse to pay for this. I mean, um, we provide super bills and I kid you not, one of the moms um, came back to me and she said, all the super bills, so the super bill is a receipt and of all the services I provide. So I provide for two months, it's about four home visits and it's direct care to me. So I, my patients text me directly. Um, to, I don't have like a phone tree or anything like that. $190 for two months is what they were going to reimburse me. And you're like, really? Like, really? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. Um, so we're really working on that front. So now the other really cool thing is when you look at Medicaid, and this is the next frontier that I'm gonna be working on in Colorado, is Medicaid just expanded their postpartum coverage up to 12 months. Now, usually what happens, whatever Medicaid does, the insurance companies kind of start getting into line with it. Medicaid has said, we've expanded this coverage. Now states do whatever you want with it. So here in Colorado, really trying to get this conversation. So we met with the director of Medicaid, met with the policymakers as well. And for the next year or two, kind of starting to create dyad care in the realm of Medicaid and say, these are the reasons and having those conversations. So there is movement. Um, like I said, through we're gonna be launching our directory in January through the Center for Fourth Trimester Care. So you'll see about those 15 physicians that I'm talking about around the country. So hopefully there's one in your area. We have more people interested on the physician level to do this kind of care incorporating into their own practices. So there is movement that is coming along and having these conversations um, is wonderful <laughs> to be like, hey, this is what we need. Help us get there. You know, we, we need your help too, to get it there. Yeah, this, and that was one of the things that again, struck me looking at the, the data for industrialized countries, that postpartum care for mothers in all other countries is a year. And in the United States that, um, I'm trying to think of the, the benefit that's offered, you know, when, you know, after a mother gives birth, they typically get about you know, three months off, uh, FMLA. Yeah, um, but sometimes it's not paid, right? So right. regardless regardless of your politics, and I'm just literally putting in that, Donald Trump was the first president to sign federal medical FMLA, paid medical FMLA, right? So he was the first. Now there's certain states that are requiring paid medical leave and paid family and medical leave. Colorado is one of them, part of it. And that, that is important. Then you have other um, businesses such as Google that um, have wonderful paid um, family leave. So recognizing all of that, but it needs to just be standardized across. So it needs the, this ability to be like, okay, um, you we, we recognize this is an important time in your life. We're gonna help support you. Now the, the back end of that is businesses and economists, basically corporations will say, hey, you know, we're gonna be losing money on this, but 
being part of the um, movement to do paid family leave in Colorado, the research indicates it's actually not true. Because when you lose a worker, that's three months of their pay that you have to have to invest back in to find that worker again. And that is actually more costly to businesses versus, okay, let me just pay you for the three months that you need to adjust and we can, we, we're gonna pay you your disability or however it works out into your areas. That's actually more cost effective because then your workers come back more supported because they rec they're just more supported. And that that's not just women, it's, it's fathers too. So like for Coors Factory out here in Colorado, I mean, one of my dads has 12 weeks paid family leave. So it's, it's just not looking at from the mom's perspective, also from the dad's perspective, and I mean, he is floored and he's going to come back and give 110% to Coors again, just because Coors recognized that, hey, you have a life-changing event, take your time. And so that's what the studies have actually shown. So people who foo-foo paid family leave, a medical leave, they always bring in that, oh, it's going to be so cost inhibitory to like a corporation. And you're like, actually, no, the studies have actually shown vice versa because it's more cost of, um, you have more cost replacing that worker than if you just kind of help and support them. And that worker comes back even more supported. So that that's that, there's that component as well too. Um, yeah, and I, I just, what's really interesting is when we are having our conversation, I don't remember if I mentioned this to you, but a lot of what I talk about on this show is, is you know, about leadership and self-leadership and leadership development and all that. But one of the core concepts, uh, you know, that I, I talk about a lot is when, when you're a, a good leader, when, when you're actually taking your obligation seriously, you know, and I, and I say obligation because when you accept uh, the responsibility of a certain position, a leadership position, you're obligating yourself to, you know, ensure the success of the people that you're leading. And part of that is genuinely caring about their well-being. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of one of those things where if you're really concerned about your employees' well-being, you'd be looking at the kind of care that you're providing them when they're in need. Mm -hmm. As in FMLA or you know, when when a baby's born, when you know, there, maybe there's a death in the family or something like that. If you take care of your people, they're going to show up for you. It's what you were just saying. You know, it just, I, I just think that it's just another layer of when you look at these organizations that stand out as having uh, strong leadership models, they're the ones that are taking care of their people. Uh, oh. you know, they're they're kind of leading the way uh with with efforts like this so yeah yeah De i mean definitely i mean you once you're supported in anything you come back much stronger regardless right and then so here's the deal too okay so now let's just look at it from the economic sense standpoint let's say you did give your worker the time off okay let's just say the father perspective and the father is three months off and he and he was able to um help his um uh, partner and wife breastfeed successfully now they're they're breastfeeding great guess what that infant will have less sick days overall when they go to daycare 
your worker won't be asking to take time off in the future because you have empowered them to focus on breastfeeding. Breastfeeding, we know, we know that data so well that reduces ear infections. What's the com most common, why you take them to the pediatricians? Ear infection, runny nose, colds. So when they go to daycare, they're not, they're not going to have more time off. Like th those workers aren't going to be like, okay, I need a sick day because I need to go take care of my child. So it's all interconnected and it's all about the economics of health. And I think if we start talking about that, you're like, oh, well, that makes sense that my workers aren't going to be taking off like days in the future because they're baby sick now and they have to take them to the pediatrician. So, yeah. I am so glad that uh, that we were able to meet and and set all this stuff up. This is, uh, I, I think, a very important conversation uh, to be had and to be heard. Um, and again, what uh, for those listening that may want to reach out to you or you know check out your website, uh, what what's the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, so just through the website, so it's N-A-Y-A-C-A-R-E, so N-A-Y-A-C-A-R-E dot org. Um, we're not a nonprofit. It was the only domain that was available. So trust me, for some reason, dot com was taken five years ago. I have no clue how. Um, and then it's, it's info. So the email is on there. There's a free consultation um, button also, um, but just emailing me is directly, is is the best way. So at info at niacare.org. And then we can continue the conversation that way. And um, I just thank you so much. Like this platform is amazing. Um, I'm super excited that I had this ability to talk to your audience as well, because I think it's just important to bring the fathers in as well. And, you know, with the talk, with the book, even with my own husband, it started with my husband, right? It's like, dude, um, the other thing that I would also kind of just mention out there too, is that the postpartum period is just so important for you guys' health overall. When you're pregnant, please budget for that as well with like maybe uh, someone like me, if you're in Colorado or a doula help, if you're in other states, um, buying that $800 stroller is not going to have their ROI that the support in postpartum is going to have that's going to that investment is going to be like downstream effect more than that $800 stroller that you think that is going to be like life-changing that's not going to be life-changing so just for your fathers also to really keep in mind that please when you're budgeting for your families and there make sure that you do budget for the postpartum period and that just is so imperative so everybody listening, niacare.org, check out her book. And, and where's the best place to buy your book, The Doctor and Her Black Bag? Yeah, so it's free actually through my website. So you can get a PDF version and an Audible version. And then it's also available on Amazon. So Awesome. Yeah. Sonal Patel, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.